0: I want to entertain this morning the thought or the question as to what is the point of christmas what is the purpose of christmas how do you perceive christmas you know i find you know i i, I love christmas christmas is one of my, my most favorite seasons but i find it so hard to try to figure out you know what to give for gifts i'm i'm not much of a gift receiver i really am not. i, don't, I, I really if i ever, if never got a gift that would be fine I just enjoy uh, just joy giving gifts. I love giving gifts, and I'm having a hard time this year trying to figure out what to get my wife because she's got me. <laughs> so what is better than that? But uh, with that said, you know what is the what is the point of Christmas? What, what how do how do you perceive Christmas? Full disclosure: some, I, I'm a storyteller. I love telling stories. Uh, I, I think we, you know, for me, stories help to reveal the biblical truths. I'm not the only one that liked telling stories, by the way. Jesus told stories. They were called parables. He took the stories that were relevant to his day and he put the scripture to it. and so. Uh, I I look, I find stories, stories that interest me, stories that uh, help me to convey biblical truths, and I share them, as I'm going to do probably several times today. How do you perceive Christmas? What is the point of Christmas? What is the purpose of Christmas? A man who was very concerned with his friend, and rightfully so, because his friend was seemed to be drinking a little bit more than he should be drinking. In fact, his friend was an alcoholic. And he knew his friend was an alcoholic, and he says, you know, I, I, I need to do something to get my friend's attention. I gotta do something that's drastic, something that will shock him maybe into to, to taking a hard look at himself and realize the, the way he's going is not working. So he decided one day to follow his friend to the local bar where his friend had become his friends would often go and it would become his tradition. His friend would go into the bar, he would go to the back table of the bar to the right in a little dark area. He would get a bottle of Jack Daniels and a little shot glass and another shot glass of water and he would sit there almost every day and he would, that would be the way he would spend half of his day. So his friend found out what bar he frequented, followed him into the bar, went over to his friend and said, John, I need to talk to you. You know, we've been friends for many, many years, and we, we just need to, we need to talk. And I need you to listen to me, John, because what I'm going to say to you is extremely important. John, will you do that for me? John said, yeah, I'll do that for you. So he went and he said, listen, he told the bartender to bring him over another bottle and two more Two more glasses, two more shot glasses. And in one shot glass, he filled it all the way to the top with, with whiskey. The other one, he filled all the way to the top with the water. And then he took out a little packet out of his pocket, a little envelope. There was two worms in the envelope. And he took one of the worms and he put it in the water. And the worm just kind of floated around and went around in circles and just swam around. The other worm he put into the alcohol. Within about 30 seconds, it had swum around and went to the bottom and it was dead. He said, John, do you see what's going on here? Do you see what happened? Do you get it? He looked at the worm at, at the bottom of the whiskey glass and he says, Yeah, I get it. I, I understand. He said, John, it's very important to me that I understand, that you understand. What did you just see? What, what did you understand? And the man looked at him very intently and he said, Well, I understand that if I drink whiskey, I won't have worms. <laughs> he didn't quite get it. You know, I think we can say together that John didn't understand that John didn't get it. Well I'm here to tell you that there's a lot of people that don't get it when it comes to Christmas. they don't understand what it happens. Or, what it means to have a Christmas. Now, I've, I've given each one of you out there, at least I've offered it to you, and if you haven't got one, I've got some more that my wife will give out later. And, I, and it's, it's, it's a, uh, a list of what they call modern Jesus and biblical Jesus. I'm not going to go through this w- with you this morning. I'm going to challenge you to take a look at this. I'm going to challenge you to take it home throughout the week and throughout the Christmas time. And on the left side, where it says biblical Jesus, for you to look at your Bible, because, you know, the, Bible, the bottom line is, is that. Um, we don't come here just to listen to someone speak. We're not here to have an you know, uh, auditory contest. We're here to learn and to be equipped and to be able to go into this world and to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're here to be taught how to understand. And if you're here this morning and you can't find the scriptures to do this, then we need to talk. We need to find out why you can't read the Bible, why you can't use the tools and what we can do to help you to use those tools. Because when the, the disciples got together, and again, my brother over here in the military, and I point you, I'm going to talk about you because you understand me where I'm coming from. They, they, we had we had staff meetings, and that commander sat at the top, at the head of that staff meeting, and you sat somewhere around that staff officer, didn't you? And that's and you the commander told gave out our orders of what we were supposed to do, for, and usually once a week. And we sat around that side, and I sat right to the left of the commander because I was the chaplain. And he said, every single commander I ever worked for says, "I want you here beside me." I think he wanted me there beside him so he would calm down on some of the bad words, <laughs> <laughs> but I would temper things for whatever reason, we got together and we had marching orders. That's what Jesus did as the commander of his disciples. He got them around the table. and He said, listen, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to take the next hill. This is how we're going to proceed within the context of our ministry. And this is how we are going to win this war. We're not going to win the war that we're living in today by not reading the word of God and implanting it within our hearts. We're not going to, read the word of, we're not going to be able to, to succeed in this world without, without prayer. They used to say you have to put feet to your prayers. If you don't have a Bible that has a concordance in the back of it, you need to get one. And if you don't have one and can't afford one, get with me personally. I will buy you one. It's that important. It's that important that you know how to use God's word. And it's not important. You know, it's, it's extremely important that we realize that we don't come to church on Sunday to hear the word of God, and then take that Bible and, and you know, like, like I do, because I've, I've got like twenty-five Bibles at home, so I can do this. I leave it in the car sometimes, till next week. But that doesn't mean I don't read the Bible during the week. I got twenty-five other Bibles at home that I read. The question is, what Bible are you reading between Monday and Saturday? Or is the, only, the only place that you're hearing the word of God is what is put up on this board back here, or what is said over by the preacher? Again, what is your perception of what it means to be a Christian? The world has a perception of Christmas. That perception is very self-serving. It's very much one of indulging. It's very much one of partying. It's very much one of focusing on materialism and commercialism. It's very much on gluttony. Christians have a a perspective, too. It should be on celebration of Jesus Christ's birth. It should be one of benevolence where we we, we go out and we want to do things for others because when God's Holy Spirit comes into your life, when God works in your life, you, you, you don't have to be forced to do certain things. You want to do certain things. It concerns me about those that fail to attend church. The Bible says, "Assemble yourselves together." Why, why does He do that? Because that's where we get our power. It's not that I care that people stay at home. In fact, it's great that we' able to stay at home. I have to stay at home times because of, my, of certain illnesses that are in my life. That I'm dealing with now. And it is great. It is actually a blessing to be able to get on when I'm not able to come to church and hear the word of God being preached in my in my in my room. I, I mean I, I I I really much appreciate it. But if you're able and you're a, and you can walk and you can be here and you know, the question is, is what is motivating you? What is your perspective? How does God operate? How is God's Holy Spirit in your life? It's not how, you know, again, this is another story. But a general was uh, looking for a driver. And he was interviewing some of the soldiers that were in the battalion. And he, had, he selected three that were given to him as good drivers. And one drove very close to the edge and very slow and was very meticulous. He, he, he got the general from point A to point B very, very, very safely and as well as quickly. The other one, he kept stopping and starting, stopping and starting, he, he was just, just too apprehensive. And finally he realized that this, this, that guy definitely not the one I want. And then he had another one, and this guy, he was just like a, he was like a race car driver, he, he could drive anything. He could drive quickly, and he, he drove around those curves. And he got close to those curves, but he got that dr- the journal there faster than anybody else. And the general said, they asked the general, what driver do you want? He said, the one that was the slowest, the one that stayed further away from the curve, the one that didn't take the risk. Sometimes, folks, many of us in the Christian church drive our lives like we are the race car drivers, not seeing how far away we can be from the dangers, but how close that we can be to a risk. It's not how close that we can be to the falling, but it's how close that we can be to God. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn to Isaiah. Uh, you don't have to. I'm going to read the scriptures for you, but it's on Isaiah chapter 7. There's only going to be a couple, two or three scriptures I'm going to read, Isaiah chapter seven fourteen, Isaiah chapter 9, 6 through 7. But the, 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 the real story is not in the passage of scriptures, but in the history that precedes Isaiah speaking these words. I want to take you back, if you will, to almost 700 years, 730 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. Solomon has has just died. Of course, there was David who was before Solomon. David considered, he's probably the earmark. He's probably the the standard bearer, one of the best kings that Israel ever had. In fact, it's through the lineage of David that we hear about Jesus. We don't talk about the the kings that came before David. We we talk about David. Because David was a man after God's own heart. David loved God. But even then, David had a lot of things in his life that wasn't quite right. David was told over and over again, there are certain things that you needed to do and certain things you shouldn't do. One of the things he told told David was, you were not supposed to have a harem. Well, guess what? Out of all the kings of Israel, David had the largest of all harems. He told David, he said, Listen, God told David, don't count your people. Trust in me. What did David do? He goes out and have a census, and he counted all the people because he wanted to stroke his ego. Look at how many people that I rule over. He told David, Do those things and trust me, and I will bless you. Now we know that David fell in love with with a young lady over by the name of Bathsheba. Remember that? This is the guy that's after God's own heart, David, a man after God's own heart. He sees Bathsheba, and I, you know, it's hard for me to to look at this because I look at it from a command. You know, in, in our world, this is just almost unforgivable. But God is a God of mercy and a God of grace and God is a God of forgiveness. I'm not always. I don't know if I could have forgiven David. David finds this woman bathing on the top of a building top next to his in, within the context of his kingdom. Falls in lust with her because he didn't know her. He hadn't never talked to her. All he saw was her in the bathtub across the way and he had to have her. And he Makes que- he makes a question. He says, listen, who is she? Where does she where, who does she belong to? Who is she married to? And she was married by none other than one of his most loyal captains, Uriah. And so he says, you know, I just can't take Bathsheba. If I take Bathsheba, that would really look bad. I'm not gonna, I don't want to look bad in front of everybody. I mean, I would just, you know, so how can I do this? So he takes Pashiba, so he takes Uriah and he sends him to the front lines. You know, there's a, there's a front line in the military that, you know, you don't want to go. There's a front line in the military where they send people that, you know, that they're, they're almost like fodder. I mean, someone's got to do it. Someone's got to break the line. Unfortunately for me, they usually call that the Marines. I mean, they go wherever else. The difference between an Army guy and a Marine guy is that you tell a Marine guy to go take the tank, and he says, yes, sir, and he goes. An Army guy, you tell him to go take the tank, he says, yeah, me and what Army? They don't go, but Marines. Marines I, I love working. I, I worked with Marines. I served with Marines in Bosnia. They're they're, they're, they're great guys, but they're crazy. I mean, they are they're they are just told, and they and they go, and they're and they're great. And I, I love to death. But the story goes on. He takes Uriah and he sends him to the front lines, to, and and, fr- and of course he's slaughtered on the front lines. And of course that was orchestrated so that he could get the Bashirbo. And then he takes Bishop as his wife. Now you would think all that, you know, how how could God say he was a man after his own heart? Well, God looks beyond your sin. He looks beyond my sin. He looks beyond all those things that have gone on in your life. And even though we may judge from all these things, God is the perfect judge. Don't quite always understand it. Don't under, always I always get it, but he's a perfect judge. That's not to say that if you read the rest of the story, that he didn't pay a heavy price. His whole family ended up turning against David. He had everything from incest. It's full of intrigue. If you, if you haven't read the Bible and you haven't been reading the Bible, there is more. There is more lust, adultery, fornication. Anything you want within the context of the Bible. I'm not endorsing all those things. I'm just saying it's there. It reads like a thriller. It reads like, it's just, it's just, it's just an interesting read. But that was David. He was the king. And then after David became Solomon, and after Solomon came Obadiah, and the problem was with Rehoboam. And what happened with Rehoboam was that's when the people of Israel divided about 730, 730 years before the birth of Christ. You had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom was Jerusalem and Israel. I mean, excuse me, was Jerusalem and Judah, Jerusalem being the capital. This The northern kingdom was Israel, 10 tribes of Israel, actually. And for years, they we were in this squabble because basically what happened was when when jeroboam became the next king he couldn't they, they wouldn't follow him so 10 tribes broke away and the kingdom of god or the kingdom of israel not the kingdom of god there is no chaos in the kingdom of god but the kingdom of israel that was on earth at that time was in chaos the leadership of that world of the world was in chaos And it was in that time that Israel, or not Israel, but Isaiah, the Bible says that Isaiah saw the Lord. High and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. I've never seen God's visible presence, if it did, it would probably scare me to death, but Isaiah saw him. And there was an angel of the Lord that came to and with the coals, touched his lips, and he said, E-I-O-A. Whoa, I am a man of unclean lips. One thing that happens in the context of, of, of knowing God is that when you meet God, you see yourself. When you stand in the presence of an almighty, Holy Spirit-filled God, or presence of the Holy Spirit in the, the, the Godhead, you see yourself. And he says, woe, I'm undone. Now the scripture goes on to say that that was part of Isaiah's calling to where he was going to be called to, to, to the people of Israel to tell them to change their ways whatever reason, Israel continued to have problems with idolatry. They continued to have problems with worshipping other gods. They continued not to, to serve and follow after God. They, they, they want what a lot of us all want. From the very garden until now, total autonomy. To make our own choices. Not to believe that God is better at doing that, but that I can do it better myself. And the scriptures tell us that at that time that Isaiah is telling the people of, of of Israel. You know, because of your refusal to comply with God, because you are a people that are stubborn, that are reigning in sin, God is going to cast judgment upon you, and you are going into captivity. It preceded 70 years of captivity. The Assyrians came first. And it was more than a couple years later that the Babylonians came and they were sent into captivity for 70 years. The current major prophet, he was one major prophet, but a contemporary of, of Isaiah was Jeremiah. He prophesied basically along the same lines. We said there would be a boiling pot out of the north that was going to come and this was going to be the destiny for Israel for the next 70 years. Think about it for just a moment. God had told them initially, you don't want a king. You really don't want a king. But the people said, we want a king. They gave them what they wanted. Over and over and over again, where the people of God have gathered together, God has given them what they wanted. And what they want is in opposition to what God wants for them. There's always a price to be paid. It looks dark, doesn't it? I mean, 70 years, can you imagine? They had to wipe out a whole generation of people that were not thinking right, that that refused to comply with God. God said, okay, that generation refused to do those things that I wanted them to do, so that generation will be removed. Well, God didn't forsake them. God never forsakes them. Every single situation and circumstance in the Bible Where dark things happen, there's always a light. There's always a light that shines in the darkness. And in Isaiah, that light was the the messianic prophecy of the coming of Jesus Christ. He's saying, even though you are in darkness now, even though you have done all of these things, there's one who is coming. And in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, 700 years before Jesus Christ was even born, it says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. We sang about it this morning in our hymns. Emmanuel, what is that? God with us? Talking about the presence of Jesus Christ will come and reconcile men and women to himself. It talks about the manner in which he will be born. He will be born of a virgin. But let there be no, let there be no, uh, uh, my word, my words failed me for a moment. Uh, let there be, <laughs> understand this, that it was not his birth that was A miracle. It was the conception. It was the conception. To one of the names given Christ Emmanuel, meaning God with us, it pointed to his human birth and his divine nature. And then again in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, it says this: For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, in order to establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward and forever. So again, we talked about his family lineage, that from David. We talked about the government being a head of government, having a throne and being a king, and that he will be able an eternal kingdom. Perception is usually our reality. But perception is not necessarily the truth. Do you understand what I'm saying? How we perceive the world, how we perceive see things is usually a reality but not necessarily the truth i'll give you a, give you a, a, an instance for driving down the metro Out right here in dc you get on the you get on the metro a, a, a father has to a son and a daughter are, are sitting together on the metro as soon as the metro starts taking off and moving, these kids are all over the place. They're yelling. They're screaming. They're they're, they're hitting people. You watch. You're trying to read your paper and you're slapping your paper, and you're getting madder and you're getting madder and you're getting madder. You want, you, want to, you want to take their kids and you want to give them a little bit of discipline yourself. You know what I mean? You ever been there where you just, just, seen you just want, want, to, want to do something? To do, just do something. And it, gets, it, and it doesn't get better. It just gets worse. I mean, before long, you got coffee spilled all over you. you got people all looking in your direction and, and you're over there kind of doing everything you can not to say anything. And finally, as you're sitting there, and you almost say something, somebody else says, you know, sir, I don't know what's going on with you, man, but, you know, and he's kind of like in a daze. He's just like acting like he's in another world. He's not paying any attention to all of these kids at all. And somebody else says something before you do, and later on, you're very grateful that he did it rather than you. And he says, you know, sir, I don't understand what's going on with you, man, but you, know, you, you gotta get these kids under control. They're, they're all over the place. I mean, do you, do you see what they're doing? And he looks up, kind of like shooken out of a daze. He says, yes, sir, you, you know, you're absolutely right. I, I, you know, I apologize. He says, you know, I, I, we've been at the hospital all day long. Their mother died three hours ago. And I, I just didn't have the heart. I haven't even been able to tell them yet. See what the, percep- what the perception was before? And now what the perception is the next a few minutes later? I mean, 30 seconds made all the difference in the world. 30 seconds made all the difference. You went from wanting to strangle these kids that were running all over the place to taking them up, taking them up in your arms and hugging them and showing them that you love them. It's so very important that we be careful on how we perceive things. You know, we have been told that Jesus Christ is returning soon. We have been told, told the disciples were, were told that Jesus Christ was coming and was going to be the king. In fact, their whole ministry was, was based on the fact that he was going to take over for King David. I mean, why did they all go 20 different directions when, when he was crucified? Because they couldn't get it. They didn't get it. They didn't understand. In fact, in Luke chapter 18, verse 34, it says, The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. That was when Jesus was explaining what was going to take place with him. He said all these things are going to take place, and they didn't understand. We're still waiting for Jesus to return. And I believe he's going to return. And I, and I keep preaching the same way the disciples did, and the Apostle Paul did, and Peter did, and Luke did, and John did, and the disciples did, because God placed that in my heart that Jesus is going to return. And the more I look at this world, I really do believe he may be coming back any second now. I'm surprised he's not back already, to be quite frankly. I can't see of any reason why he can't maybe back. I look at the scriptures, and look at the prophecies, I believe they've all been fulfilled. But I also know that's my perspective. But I'm going to keep preaching my perspective because that's what the Bible told me to preach. That's the perspective of of the disciples. That was the perspective of those that love and care for God because we, we want to be ready for when he comes. Sometimes we don't know what we need to be afraid of and what we shouldn't be afraid of. When I was in uh, college, I had a friend of mine say, hey, you know, let, let's, let's take off this week. And I had a very gracious wife who let me go. She gave me permission. Uh, Twikiwachi Springs in, in, in Florida, Southern Florida, and go scuba diving. They got a wonderful wreath there and it's a wonderful springs there and he said man you, you know we could just go off and he wasn't married so i was telling him, you know, the poor guy doesn't have a wife or nothing you know like, can i go can i go uh, she said <laughs> she said yes and, and i went and i I'm, I'm from virginia you know my home my home was you know i'm not from the south i don't know about all those all those sea creatures. I, I know what an alligator looks like and a crocodile looks like and what fish look like, but you know I don't, I don't know about all those creatures under the water. So I get out the Wiggy these friends with my friend, and my, my friend takes, we, we start going scuba diving, and we got down about 80 feet under the water, and it was just gorgeous. I mean, the waters were just beautiful. They had an old old ship that had been uh, left down there to, to be a reef. We, we, we kind of explored the ship, and uh I, I remember when i was about 80 feet down my buddy hit my shoulder pointed up and i looked and there was an alligator about an eight foot alligator and it was swimming across the top and that was fine because i was 80 feet away from him and he's way up there and i'm way down here you he not usually they don't usually bother you i, I knew about an alligator so, and i knew also i was going to stay there until he was gone and i did i watched, I watched him go and uh, a few minutes later my buddy would come up to me and he would you know he, he want to do what they call buddy breathing you take out the regulator and you give it to the other guy and i go i don't want to do buddy breathing you know but what had happened he had swam down 80 feet without any air and i was afraid to take it out of my mouth well I'll make a long story short i did take it out of my mouth or he was going to drown and I, we finally figured it out and he goes he goes he goes swimming back up to the top i'm still down i'm still mesmerized i'm still in the, around the reef and I started to go to the, to the top, and I turned around, and all of a sudden, I saw a sea monster. It, I'd never seen a sea monster before. It looked like it had, looked like an elephant without legs. Never, never seen one, never saw one. That was the first time. And they're big. I mean, the whole circumference of my being, it was bigger than I was. I looked around, it was a monster. And I hit my BC, with BC was called buoyancy compensator, it has a CO2 capsule that fills up with air in your vest and shoots you to the top, like a top. And I'm, so I, I hit that thing and I'm floating up to the top and I get to the top and I start yelling, sea monster, sea monster, sea monster. And my friend comes over to me and says, what are you talking about? I said, there's a sea monster down there. He said, that's not a sea monster, it's a manatee. And I go, manatee, manatee, manatee. Now, if you know anything about manatees, which I had never seen one before, and I'll I'll tell you one thing, the first time you ever see one is not 80, you you don't wanna see one at 80 feet below the water if you've never seen one before. That's not the place for the first time to see one. You wanna see it on a National Geographic or somewhere else. But the bottom line is they're called sea cows. They're very friendly. Later on, after about 20 minutes of me calming down and getting my breath, we we, we, we went back down there and I started petting them and they were, they were fine. But sometimes we are afraid of things that we shouldn't be afraid of and not afraid of things that we should be afraid of. We need to see not how far away from God we can be, be and still get into the pearly gates, but we should be trying to get as close to God as we can especially in the time in, in which we are living. I'm going to end with one more story, just because I, it was one that I found that was very interesting that was said to me. And, uh, I remember remember some of this. It's a real, it's a true story. Uh, back in the late 50s, there was a well-known host, comedian, songwriter. Uh, he was just getting on the TV at the time. His name was Stuart Hamblin. You may, some of you may have know, known him. He was noted for his noted for drinking, womanizing, and partying, basically what everybody else in Hollywood is noted for. Uh, I don't mean to paint such a broad brush, but a good majority, I would say. But sometime later, a preacher was holding a tent revival nearby, and Hamlin invited the preacher to his radio show. And he did so just so that he could make, make fun of him, to, to get him on the radio and, and poke fun of this now, that never happens with Christians. Nobody ever makes fun of us, do they? No, 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 not at all. But early in the service, the preacher announced, uh, oh, excuse me, he, on his radio show, yeah, he invited him to his radio show to make fun of him. But in order to get more material for a show, before he actually appeared on the radio, uh, Hamlin showed up at one of his revival meetings. He had a, he had a big tent. He said, "Man, this is what I'll do. I'll show up at the tent revival, I'll gather some material, then when we get on the radio, I can make, make fun of the preacher. But early in the service, the preacher announced there' was a man in this audience who is a big fake. Now, I don't know about you, but when I get up and I preach, or sometimes I will, will, will say certain things that you know, I'll look at across the audience, and I'll say, "God is speaking to you. There's something in your heart that's not right this morning." And, uh, and that's probably true I could say that this morning And there's probably people here there's probably one or two or three people here the difference between whether or not that lands is God's Holy Spirit see if I say that and all of a sudden it lands in such a way that it tweaks your heart that means God is speaking to you I may not know who you are particularly but I do know God's Holy Spirit, and I know that is the truth. When I was saved, when Jesus Christ came into my life, someone came. It was Lowell Harrop which was our uh, youth leader uh, at that time, my youth leader, you know, pastor. But he got up and he preached the message, and he said, "You're here today, and you need God because your life is all broken up, and you you, you just need Him." And, and a few more words, and I made a beeline to the to the front, and I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And I was not alone, there were several others. But you know something, when he said that to me, he wasn't talking to Joe and John and Jeff and Jerry and Mary and Ann. He was talking to Warren. And when God's Holy Spirit reaches out to you and he talks to you, he's not talking to everybody else, he's talking to you. You may be here this morning and God is speaking to you. In that particular situation, that that young man who went there, that 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 comedian, that star, or whatever he might call himself, he thought that that preacher was talking to him, just like many people in that congregation probably thought that that evening. A couple nights later, the man that went to the uh, Hamblin, the man who went to the tent revival, showed up at the preacher's door, drunk. He was banging on the preacher's hotel hotel door at about two o'clock in the morning, and he was demanding to see the preacher. But the preacher refused to see him. He said, listen, this is between you and God, and I'm not getting in the middle of it. But later on, the preacher relented, and he allowed Stuart in, and they talked to him about 5 o'clock in the morning. At 5 o'clock in the morning, Stuart dropped to his knees, and he cried out to God, save my soul, and change my life. And the Bible and, 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 and the and he did it. God saved him. And so how do we know that? Well, we, we know that because all of a sudden Stuart, he quit his drinking, he quit chasing women, he quit everything he used to think he was so fun. And he began at that particular time to lose great favor with those that were in Hollywood. All those that he had thought were his friends, all those that he had so tried to impress, all those people around him that he, he, that he, he sought their influence had ultimately turned on him. He was ultimately fired from a radio station that he was working at because he refused to accept uh, alcoholic company sponsorship of his show. He went through such hard times like the devil often orchestrates to lure him back to the dark side. He tried writing some religious songs, and he did write a couple, The Old House. Another, another was Until My Heart Will Go on Singing make a long story short, a friend of his came by to talk to him, and he said, listen, Hamlin, was it worth it? A known movie star talking to Hamlin says, was it worth it, you, you, you lost your, your friends, you lost your reputation, you lost your job, would you do it over again? He said, yes, and immediately I do it. it, it was worth it all. He says, what are you going to do? I don't know. His friend told him, when he asked him, what are you going to do? He says, it's no secret what God can do. And his friend said, you know, you should write a hymn. I don't know if you're familiar with that hymn, but there is no secret what God will do. Is the hymn that he wrote. The young preacher that was preaching at the tent was Billy Graham. The friend that came to ask Joe Hamlin whether it was worth it or not was John Wayne. It is no secret what God can do. If God's Holy Spirit's talking to you this morning, listen.